Hi, we've got three stories from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn how your brain processes puns, why Red Delicious are the most popular, most terrible apple, and the latest updates on how close we are to inventing cryosleep chambers for astronauts. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Cody, have you ever seen 2001 A Space Odyssey? I've seen it three times. Wow. Have you? That's a lot of movie. I have I have a really hard time staying awake during very long movies, and that is a very long movie. And there's no dialogue for more than the first 20 minutes. Yeah. So is there any way you lasted more than 10? Oh, no, it's it's so hard. I got to try again. It's a classic, I know. Yeah, every time I've seen it, I've had a different reaction. I'll love it, and then the next time I see it, I'll really not like it. <laughs> it's a strange film. Hmm. Well, that movie is one of lots of sci-fi stories with deep sleep chambers, which put astronauts to sleep for months at a time while their ships traveled to distant galaxies. Well, guess what? A company called Spaceworks Enterprises has actually been working on technology to help us do that. And you can find Curiosity's interview with Spaceworks Project Manager today on Curiosity.com and on the Curiosity app for Android and iOS. Here are some of the things we learned. First off, you've got to realize that a one-way ticket to Mars would take about six months. And setting up astronauts for six months of living conditions would take a lot. We're talking cooking supplies, exercise equipment, science stations, sleeping quarters, bathrooms, entertainment, and that's for half a year's worth of stuff. This is why it would be really helpful if we had a way to make those astronauts hibernate. And Spaceworks got a half a million dollar grant from NASA in 2016 to work on finding a way to do that using medically induced torpor. Torpor is a state of inactivity characterized by low body temperature, slow breathing, slow heart rate, and low metabolic rate, but continued brain activity. It's kind of like how bears hibernate through the winter. Obviously, humans don't hibernate naturally, but hibernation has happened to humans in a medical environment before. In medically induced torpor, also known as therapeutic hypothermia, doctors lower a patient's body temperature so tissues aren't as likely to be damaged when blood flow is low. This could be a good option for patients who have suffered cardiac arrest, stroke, trauma, and brain injuries, among other things. By lowering a patient's temperature by even a couple of degrees, the procedure makes it so cells need less oxygen, and that protects them from the damage that could otherwise occur. Right now, clinic protocols call for administering therapeutic hypothermia for 24 to 72 hours, and Spaceworks is targeting periods of 7 to 14 days. During a deep space mission, a crew might repeat torpor cycles with a couple days of activity between hibernating while in transit. And some at Spaceworks believe they might be able to achieve this capability for manned missions as soon as the 2030s. Not to mention it could be useful here on Earth for medical devices and other ways of helping out the human race. Right now, Spaceworks is working on getting private funding to help them with the next phase of R&D. Again, you can read the full write-up today on Curiosity.com, and we'll include a link in the show notes. But this is exciting stuff. Yeah, let's just make sure an AI isn't controlling how long they're asleep. Right. I know that part of 2001. (laughs) (laughs) So the basic idea is keep them in torpor for, again, 7 to 14 days, but basically they wake up for a couple days to stretch after that. Right, yeah. You wouldn't be asleep for the entire six months. That makes sense. But maybe someday. How much do you love puns? Working at Curiosity has really increased my love of puns. I (laughs) did not used to like them, but they're really becoming a part of me. (laughs) Well, a recent study found that both sides of your brain work together to help you understand puns. So I, I think that they're a genius device. But let's back up for a second. The whole left brain versus right brain theory thing has been pretty much debunked, right? It's not like the left brain is the organized logical side and the right brain is the creative emotional side. That's not science. 
but research has indicated that some skills may tend to live more in one side than the other. Like language sometimes prefers one side, for example, and in a lot of people, it's the left brain. Although in many people, language is in the right brain. Actually, a lot of times, if you're left-handed or right-handed, that can change what side of your brain certain things are on. Right, exactly. There you go. So there can be differences and there can be preferences for one side or the other in certain skills. But researchers took some puns and showed them to participants in this study in the visual field of only one eye. That's because, and I did not know this, if a joke lands in the right eye, it gets to the left brain first and vice versa. That's wild. Yeah. When the joke hit the left brain first, people reacted to the joke faster, which suggests that the left side of the brain is better at joke processing than the right side. But get this, the right side was the one that actually found the puns funny. The idea here is that the left side has powerful language abilities, so it's better able to actually understand the joke. And the right side is the one that comes in with the alternative interpretation of the words that lends the joke its laughs. This research backed up previous studies that showed that people who have damage in their right brain can sometimes understand a joke's meaning, but they don't think they're funny anymore. And hey, if comedy can't be found in the brain, then maybe it lives in the humorous. Oh, that wasn't your joke. That was Reuben Westman's joke. That was Reuben's joke. joke. You have to give credit where credit is due. Ripped that off blatantly. <laughs> this is why I'm not in comedy. You are in comedy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cody, what's your favorite apple? I never remember what they taste like. What apples taste like? No, I know what apples (laughs) taste like. Okay, but like my wife will go to the grocery store and bring back six different kinds of apples. Uh And she'll be like, well, do you want this one or this one? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't remember what they taste like. I'm like a massive apple connoisseur. I love jazz apples, Honeycrisp apples. Crips pink is really good. I like tart ones. Where do you get these? Yeah, they're they're all at the grocery store. Wow. Yeah, there are a lot of different types of apples, but that's not what we're talking about today. (laughs) Today, we're talking about red delicious apples because they're really disgusting and yet they're everywhere. Why? I mean, really disgusting might be strong words, but I I have noticed that people in this office tend to have a very strong bias against... They're so bad. They're mealy. (laughs) They're bitter. Today, Curiosity looked into at least why they got so popular. Back in the day, red delicious apples could be picked earlier and stored longer because they turn red before they're ripe. They're fooling you. (laughs) And they didn't bruise as much because of their thick skin, which is gross. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Not to mention, you couldn't really see the bruises anyway because of the dark red color. Again, it's fooling you. So they're liars. They're liars. Wow. These traits made them super popular with apple growers who didn't really breed their apples for taste. Red Delicious was iconic and ad-friendly, so it got popular even though it wasn't really that tasty. I mean, think about it. When you draw a cartoon apple, you draw a Red Delicious. Right. By the 80s, it was virtually the only apple available. Today, it's actually the fifth most popular apple in the country. Still, I don't know why. (laughs) The most popular is the Gala apple, then Honeycrisp, then Fuji, then the Granny Smith. All wonderful apples. And they got big because apples are marketed on their diversity, which is pretty unique. You don't really see growers selling different types of strawberries or blueberries or bananas, you know? Sure, except for those weird little mini banana things. Oh, those are cool, yeah. Well, anyway, some apples were more expensive since Fuji apples came from Japan and Gala apples came from New Zealand. And those came with import costs. But they're so tasty, consumers are happy to pay the price. Read more about all of today's stories and more on Curiosity.com. Join us again tomorrow for the Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious.
on the Westwood One Podcast Network.